0: 60% of the population have experienced some kind of significant trauma that may or may not be triggered.
1: Kia ora koutou and welcome to New Zealand Anesthesia, the podcast linking Aotearoa anaesthetists with what's going on across the motu and beyond. I'm Dr Morgan Edwards, the President of the New Zealand Society of Anaesthetists, and it is my pleasure to host the NZSA's podcast. Whether you're at work, in your office, on your commute, or on your daily walk or run, thank you so much for joining us. We hope you find it an insightful and informative listen. On today's episode, I'm joined by a colleague of mine from Tafatu Ora Waitematar, clinical psychologist Dr Rebecca Bex-Parks. Bex and I have had many discussions over the years about the complexities of birth trauma, and so I was really delighted when she agreed to join me on the podcast for a kōrero about trauma-informed care to understand more about what Trauma-Informed Care means and maybe some strategies to help us as clinicians identify and help our patients who may be affected by previous trauma. Beck specialises both in working with complex trauma presentations and with people who have complex and or challenging physical health conditions. Trauma-Informed Care is a specific area of interest for her, something she feels is essential for improving both the care that we provide to our patients, as well as our own experience in the caregiving role. Kia ora Bex, thank you for joining us today. Kia ora. So, let's just start at the beginning with the basics. Yeah. So how would you define
0: trauma? So, trauma occurs when events or circumstances happen to a person that include actual or extreme threat of physical or psychological harm. That's the, the definition. Um, so, one thing that's really important to take into account um, is... It's about the person's experience of the events that helps determine whether it's a traumatic event. So sometimes people go through things that you would think, oh, that's going to cause PTSD for a person and they're fine. And then other times people will go through something that you think, oh, that, that'll be fine. You know, they will have coped with that just fine. But because of the experiences that, that they've had in their life, their background, they end up finding that extremely traumatic Um, and that actually happens often with birth trauma, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, So how a person labels and assigns meaning to and is disrupted by an event is what will contribute to whether or not it's traumatic for them. So there's another aspect to this, which is, um, you know, within um, the sort of trauma informed world, we talk about Big T trauma, so like capital T trauma. That's your trauma that causes like PTSD symptoms, you know, your life threatening situations, almost died in a car crash, um, almost died in childbirth, those kind of things. And then there's small T or lowercase T trauma. And that is uh, things that maybe don't involve actual or extreme threat of physical harm, but because of a person's experiences or, you know, the nature of the event, cause them significant emotional distress. So those things come up when you're working in a trauma-informed way. You're not just thinking about people who meet the criteria for PTSD, you're also thinking about people who've been impacted by events that are traumatic for them potentially a number of small events over a period of time that add up to cause emotional distress for them that you might then see in a hospital setting.
1: I think that's so sort of worth reiterating, the very small amounts that I know about this field. It's not about what we might view as being a traumatic experience, it's about how the person experiences it.
0: Absolutely.
1: And um, I think that's so true in the birthing space that something that we as clinicians can think was a totally normal birth or yeah, maybe it was an unplanned cesarean but it was calm and the baby was fine and we still got to do skin to skin you know we had their music playing so wasn't that a really good outcome but they actually know that could have been an incredibly traumatic experience for that person so it's not about things that are necessarily really obvious those sort of tick box events that you would assume would be traumatic absolutely
0: yeah the other thing that's really important to take into account and this is really extremely relevant for clinicians doctors nurses anyone in the hospital system is that often traumatic events set up or because of their nature set up a power differential, Mm. right? So, um, where someone has been abused, for example, in a violent relationship or sexually abused, they've been in a situation where the person who is abusing them has complete power over them. They are powerless and in the hospital setting, patients aren't completely powerless, but they often feel completely powerless. So being in hospital by its nature can trigger people, um, people's trauma because of the power differential. Yeah, gosh, that's so true, isn't it? I'll talk to that a bit later as well.
1: Do you know, I was thinking about this last night, how my husband always says to me that, you know, present company excluded, for most people going to the hospital isn't a particularly enjoyable time and there's obviously a massive spectrum of that like even trauma outside of trauma it's usually just not that great but absolutely for for whatever past experience the the process of being physically present in the building um automatically put people on that high alert or high risk for having a trauma experience
0: absolutely best case scenario if you don't have any history of trauma, you're still going into hospital, likely feeling unwell or in pain or feeling vulnerable. That's that's with no background, which is unlikely. Absolutely. So why is providing
1: trauma-informed care and trauma screening or identification such a, a vital part of effective healthcare provision?
0: Right. Well, I mean, as a clinician, and I know that almost everybody who's listening to this will be a clinician, You will have encountered people who have probably acquired the label of a difficult patient. They're your people who are acting out either verbally, physically, aggressively, who uh, you maybe send home with instructions. They don't follow them. You feel like you're doing great with informed consent. And then it turns out that they haven't retained anything and they don't really know what's going on for anesthetists it might be if you're taking someone into theater they suddenly freak out out of nowhere once they're in the room for whatever reason that's why because there are so many people who have a trauma history and it presents in different ways and the number of people and i know this because of the work that i do I see the people who've been distressed and traumatized by their experience in the hospital. And I know that lots of them get labeled with the difficult patient label. And once that's happened, now their care is at best mildly impaired, but at worst, significantly impaired. What's really interesting, Morgan, is um, we have just started doing inpatient work in our team again uh, after COVID and the amount of times that we get called to do inpatient work and we go in and we sit with someone who's been difficult and doing air quotes and sit and validate them and you know help them to have a sense of control over what's happening and just talk with them and listen to them they completely change and then we have the team saying "Oh, what did you do this person's completely different and i'm saying we're just providing trauma-informed care it's it's not magic. It's just helping this person to feel less vulnerable. It's usually helping them to work towards a, a discharge plan, right? Moving from an internal bed to a window bed, little things.
1: Helping people feel heard and respected. Absolutely. Yeah. I did a bit of care for people during the pandemic, especially around the sort of vaccination space, but caring for people having babies. It was a really heightened time of people having an experience mm-hmm. in the hospital where they were potentially not trusting the healthcare system really that much at the moment, but then having pregnancies where they needed to have their babies in hospital, might have a preview or might have one of the breech presentations. And so birthing where they wanted to be and where they wanted where they would feel safe just wasn't actually an option for them. And just the intense vulnerability of those people that do present as being somebody who might be considered difficult or we could slap some other labels on them. But what it boils down to is that they're just generally terrified, vulnerable people.
0: Yes, and feel powerless. Absolutely. Powerless and out of control. So, I mean, are there steps and
1: strategies that we can sort of think about and follow with preventing more medical trauma?
0: Yeah, I mean, identifying is helpful. One of the things that would be ideal in a fully trauma-informed system, where the organisation is trauma-informed, we would do formal assessment, right? We, we'd do formal screening, and record that information, and then our system would wrap around the people who are identified as having you know previous trauma experiences, and and we would shift their care. We don't have that kind of system currently Hmm. it would be ideal (laughs) it's my long-term dream but um baby steps so what is useful to do is take a what what's called a universal approach so we assume that everyone has a trauma experience in their life now not everybody does have a significant trauma experience but 60 percent of the population have experienced some kind of significant trauma that may or may not be triggered. They might not exhibit outright PTSD, obvious PTSD symptoms while they're in hospital, but they might experience emotional distress because they've had an experience previously that's being triggered. And it's really important to remember, I I probably, you'll feel like I say this a million times, but often the trigger is feeling powerless and out of control and vulnerable in the hospital system not any particular procedure. Sometimes it's procedures, sometimes it's particular commissions, sometimes it's particular approaches, but often people are primed to be in a particular emotional state, just because of the fact that they are in a position when they're, where they're vulnerable, powerless, and out of control.
1: I think that it's really easy when you start thinking about trauma-informed care to think of it as being people who've had previous medical trauma or a bad experience with mm. doctors in hospitals, but it's actually just that previous trauma where you are in a powerless and vulnerable position and that the hospital setting is just so primed to bring
0: that out again, isn't it? It is, yeah. Um, I always, when I see doctors doing rounds – I just I every time I think, Oh my goodness. <laughs> It'll be three, four, five yep. more if there's med students sort of rush into the room. They've all got they've got this computer on a stand. They will stand around the bed over the the patient and it's all in a rush. The patient maybe doesn't you know, feel stressed, doesn't get to say what they really feel. And then it sort of rushed back out again and they're told, you know, this is what we're going to do.
1: And they're asked really personal questions and they're often.
0: Yeah. In a bed space.
1: Yeah. With other people around and they're often gowns removed or examining parts of their body that they wouldn't. Yeah. In what other situation do you expose part or whole of your body to complete strangers? And we're so desensitized to that, um, because it is we're not looking at this person and thinking oh gosh it's not the same as if you're out in the street and somebody was was in some varying state of undress we are professionals and it is normalized and we are just doing our job and we aren't looking at anything as if we're being a remotely embarrassing situation but that's that's just our experience and it's not the experience of the person that we're examining uh, or interacting with
0: absolutely yeah yeah and if you bring it back to we bring it back to birth trauma mm. the the stats for sexual assault are one in five and that's Mm. at best actually it's probably Mm -hmm. higher right one in five women have experienced a serious sexual assault and you know we know from probably experience that almost all people who present as women um, will have experienced some level of sexual assault often it's relatively minor and you think about What's happening when you've come in to give birth, you're completely vulnerable and having internal examinations, often by people you don't know. Mm.
1: And I mean, I think about it in the in the anaesthetist setting, we come into the room to put in an epidural and it, whilst we're not doing an internal examination, you know, you have somebody in this Uniquely and intensely vulnerable time. So often it's somebody who didn't necessarily plan to choose an epidural as part of their birth plan and things have deviated from that plan. They are usually in some varying state of undress and we're getting invited into this most intimate space and we have the opportunity to either use language and process that can either really support and empower and build up or The flip side is create trauma and harm and destroy that person. Again, it's Mm -hmm. often just you might have three lined up to do. And so I want to get this person comfortable. I can do this quickly. This is just part of my job. That's that stepping back and realising that actually what is very routine work for us is anything but routine for the person whose birthing space that you're entering. Absolutely. And are there sort of specific presentations or ways that trauma presents that an anesthetist or clinician can look out for?
0: Yeah, so the things to look out for, the way to think about it, not not a psychologist, so a layperson essentially, Yes. is that we have four responses usually when we are put in a situation where we feel threatened, right? Fight, flight, freeze and fawn. So fawn is um, one that a lot of people won't know but it is actually important in the context of having past trauma. So fight and flight, most people will know, people having a fight response are your verbally or physically aggressive people, right? If you've got somebody who's verbally aggressive or physically aggressive, you could almost assume that that person has some kind of trauma history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the way that their brain has learned to deal with danger. And it's really important, I think, with all of these presentations, but particularly people who are being verbally or physically aggressive, because it's so hard to, to take <laughs> as a human, um, is to remember that their brain is not rational at that point. Their brain is doing what it can to try and keep them safe. They have registered danger, and that might just be because they're in hospital, mm. again, feeling powerless, Their brain has registered danger, and now they are in Mm. fight. So if you think their brain has registered danger, what do you want to do? Help them to feel safe. You know, in all of these contexts, it's help a person to Mm. feel safe. But having that perspective can help you to take the abuse without getting defensive, because if you get defensive, what do they feel more unsafe? Yeah? So that's your fight response. Flight is your person who discharges against medical advice, right? Who just completely shuts down, who literally pulls away, you mm. know, um, you go to take bloods mm. or, or do something and they, they, they try to actually leave. Mm. If you're walking them to theater, maybe they actually turn and, and try to walk away and say, no, 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 I'm not gonna go in. That's your flight response. Those people also feel unsafe and their brain saying, get away. freeze is exactly what it sounds like so that's your person who yeah really shuts down isn't trying to leave but isn't really yeah. interacting isn't really talking they just withdraw into themselves again yeah brain is saying this isn't safe what do you do stay still don't move mm. don't upset anybody um and then you'll mm. be safe fawn is interesting so fawn is where a person becomes, you know, the perfect patient, right? Um, They're kind of, you know, they're giving you compliments. They're trying to make sure that they stay on your good side. So this is, this one's really hard to differentiate and I wouldn't expect most clinicians to be able to differentiate it. Mm. It's really hard to differentiate from someone who's just fine and friendly and chatting. What you might notice with that is that it doesn't feel completely genuine genuine yep. right there's a funny feeling to it you might not be able to identify what it is you might even not you might not even be able to identify that it doesn't feel genuine but it just feels off mm. the 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 fight flight and freeze are the ones that you're predominantly seeing
1: But I sort of come back to with this, what you said at the beginning around the sort of this, the universal approach, right? Because it is nuanced and especially with that foreign approach, that's not necessarily going to be super easy to identify. No, it's not. It's not. I can think of examples as you're saying it. Can you think of people? Straight away, you know, like, especially I think, you know, I do do a lot of obstetric anesthesia, but but I keep on coming back to the birth setting um thinking about people in that setting. Um and actually probably a lot of freeze. Um with the example that I'm often involved in, or we are as a often involved in is coming for an emergency mm-hmm. or an unplanned caesarean section. You do just see that freeze response just quite often.
0: People Absolutely. just really shutting
1: down and going very, yeah. very quiet. Yeah.
0: That is one of the one of the things that I hear often. Um, with people who've experienced birth trauma, particularly people who in their day-to-day life are outspoken and confident is they go into freeze Mm. during their birth, you know, or C-section or whatever, and they don't communicate in the way that they normally would. And then they feel traumatized by the fact that things were happening and they didn't communicate that that was okay and why didn't they Mm. communicate I should have said something. And then they take the blame on themselves. So there's education that can be done with patients to help them understand why they are having that response or why they had that response.
1: And I think also, especially in birth again, but it's not just talking about the person who's having the baby, but often the whānau or birthing support person can also have that response as well, like specifically talking around you know your example of why didn't I speak or why didn't I I just that made me think of support people also because being Mm. in that I know that trauma can also really affect the whanau but especially in that birthing space the other people in the room absolutely um you know as, as we're sort of talking about this I'm thinking often about how um this a lot of these conversations remind me about what I've learned about parenting toddlers, and mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and how yes. generous we are with small children, and mm-hmm. how actually just directly applicable that is to all people. Yes, like when I think I think about children, if they are having some of those responses to a situation, will often be very generous with them. Um we'll often use language around you know they're, they're learning how to manage those feelings, or you know that's that they're you know trying to sit and peacefully coach them through a moment rather than reacting in an angry way yourself. Um, and how that generosity yes. um, and interpretation of emotions is really just uh, not for when interacting with small people.
0: Yes. Well, it's uh, interesting that you use that example because I use that in the therapy space regularly because toddlers react the way they do because their, their frontal lobes, their higher cognitive functions aren't fully Mm -hmm. developed yet. Mm -hmm. Right? So they don't have the ability to put the brakes, so to speak on that behavior. Adults just have more developed frontal lobes and higher cognitive functions, right? So we have more capacity in most settings than toddlers to Mm
1: -hmm.
0: regulate our emotions. However, when we are experiencing a traumatic situation or a situation where we feel powerless and vulnerable and out of control, our frontal lobes aren't working all that well, actually. We are being driven by our emotions, by our amygdala, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? That's the one that, that has the sort of fear response. Yeah, we're essentially toddlers in that situation. You know, I often say to people when they're saying, oh, my loved one is doing such and such and it doesn't make sense. Or why won't they, why can't they just use some skills or why do they talk like that? And I often say, you know, it's actually useful when somebody's distressed, when somebody's highly emotional to think of them as if they were a small child, not to infantilize them, but to think, okay, this person's brain isn't doing what it normally mm-hmm. does. They aren't actually able to regulate right now. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect mm-hmm. example: a person who's having a trauma response isn't really able to regulate yeah. it. Absolutely, not not because they're they're not a, an adult like the rest of us, but because of what their brain is doing. Their brain thinks it's unsafe, therefore, fight, flight, freeze.
1: Mm. We talked about this a little bit before. I guess we we love screening tools or strategies in terms of screening. Are there any um, strategies to effectively carry out a trauma screening without causing further distress to a a patient?
0: There are. Uh, The issue is that if you're using screening tools, you need to have a system, um, a a wraparound trauma-informed system. So if you're using specific screening tools, you really need to be able to do something about what comes Mm. out of that screaming um and sometimes that might be a person reporting um sexual abuse for the first time ever and you're not a a trauma counselor Mm. you're not a psychologist Mm. if that person's not at risk of imminent harm you're not going to be able to get um, the psych liaison team to come Mm. and see them if they don't have current mental health issues you're not going to get a referral through to the mental health service. So now you've got information that you maybe can't do Mm -hmm. much with, and that isn't particularly helpful for you or the Mm. patient. So like we talked about before, um, in the absence of a fully trauma-informed system with, you know, a a trauma treatment service where you could refer Mm. someone, it's more preferable to have that universal approach of assuming that most people will have experienced trauma and knowing that these particular presentations, that fight, flight, freeze, those people are more likely to have experienced trauma. Mm. Sometimes you might feel like you have enough of a relationship with a person to say, hey, sometimes when people are, you know, feeling really upset like you are, or, you know, getting really, really distressed, they've had experiences in their life that might be similar to what's going on or where they felt powerless or, you know, something, something bad has happened to them. And then that gets triggered by being in hospital I'm wondering if anything like that has happened for you. And then often people will say, Oh, actually yeah. it really reminds me of X, Y, Z situation or this particular person really reminds me of this person who abused me. Sometimes people won't, sometimes they've not disclosed to anybody mm. ever and they're probably not gonna disclose right. to you. But you can still make that assumption and work with them in a way that is trauma informed. And, and so I guess what,
1: what role can we play as anesthetists or as clinicians in helping a patient build the skills and maximize their health outcomes?
0: Yeah, so a lot of it is around education. So really normalizing the kind of responses that you're seeing. Um, That's a lot of what I do um, when I see people, inpatient or outpatient, is normalising how they've responded or the experience that they've had. Mm. It's that psychoeducation, like I was just sort of saying. Lots of people feel really powerless in hospital. Lots of people feel really vulnerable. That might mean that it's hard for them to take in information. Mm. Does that happen for you? Do you find that sometimes people talk to you and afterwards you can't really remember much of what Mm. was happening? Would it be helpful for me to run through that again? Would it be helpful for me to write some things down? It's educating people about what's going on for them so that they, here it is again, so that they feel less powerless and more in control of what's happening for them. Yeah. They're not thinking, why am I acting like this? Which is what a lot of people say to me after the fact, why did I act like that? I don't, this isn't how I normally am. I don't want to be mm. like this. I don't want to act like this with the doctors. I know that they're doing the best they can. Mm. It's helping them to understand and then feel like they have more power over what's going on for them, how they're interacting, what's happening.
1: I think so much of what we do is about using respectful language. And when I think about the Absolutely. the spaces that we'll be in where there's often a, a crisis unfolding, one of the, one of the examples mm. I was reading was around the importance of consent obviously that's intensely important, but how that's still incredibly important and probably more so important in that true crisis setting. Yes. And I think there's very, very rarely a situation where you can't have a respectful conversation around consent.
0: Absolutely. And knowing that in a crisis situation, almost everybody will not be taking that in very well. No,
1: absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that's really important when there's been a crisis setting, yeah. the importance of the debrief, when it's really been hitting the fan and it's not been possible to, to do that as well as you would have liked to, the debrief is key mm. because in terms of a person developing ongoing PTSD versus not. Because if you remember from the beginning of our conversation, it's all about how a person experiences that situation, the meaning that they make of it. So if you leave them and don't do an effective debrief, they will blame themselves, they'll wonder why nobody talked to them, you know, what was going on. If you can debrief with them at an appropriate time, once the the really traumatic situation is passed, mm-hmm. you might initially have the conversation in the first couple of days, but again, once things have settled yep. down and their brains not feeling unsafe going through and explaining what you would normally Mm. do why you weren't able to do that in the Mm. moment helping them to understand it wasn't their fault Mm. and also you know often people feel feel forgotten totally that everyone's ignoring me and they're left and everybody's sort of doing things and they feel ignored having that conversation afterwards hey here are all the things that were going on and that's why we weren't able to, to to sit with you or there wasn't somebody able to communicate in that moment. Here's the reasoning. We wouldn't you know, this is what we would normally do. Is there information you want to know about what happened? That can that can be the difference between somebody having ongoing issues versus being able to mm. process it and move forward.
1: Thinking about that in the setting of the healthcare system that we work in, we you know, we do have the opportunity sticking with birth but we have the opportunity to see people usually only within the first 24 hours but then I really notice Mm -hmm. and I'm really thankful that where we work we have this available at the moment and I know that it'll be different across the motto Um, for people it will often be in their next pregnancy that this Mm -hmm. will then come again but so we have the ability and we encourage um, and again very thankful that we do to say we'll come and see anesthesia in your next pregnancy To talk about what happened Mm -hmm. last time, um, acknowledging the fact that we probably didn't get to do that in between because we don't necessarily have that capacity, Mm -hmm. but talking through it in pregnancy with an anaesthetist, on the phone, in person, whatever that looks like, versus not that for that person comes in for that next birth, it feels like a real missed opportunity to not have been able to talk through it. That is a time for us to be able to interact with people much calmer than in the moment. But it's hard, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and it's really difficult within the system. I'm not sure. Yeah, I I wonder if there's a place for, um, you know, where where there are births where you think that, that person might be traumatized yeah. by that. That there is information passed on to their yes, GP. yeah, and that's the other thing you can so do, So it's asked right? about and talked about at the six-week yes. follow-up because a six-week follow-up is a great opportunity where a, a bit of time mm. has passed. It's not current, mm. um, but there's an opportunity to to say, oh, wow, you know, it, lots of people who've had that kind of situation occur during mm. their birth might feel really traumatised by that. Trauma responses look like thinking about it all the time, images coming up, Mm. being reminded of things, sounds, reminding you of alarms or whatever. Um, There's really a really common one for people who've had a baby in NICU, which is the beeping of the monitors. That is often um, a really significant trauma trigger.
1: That's a really good point about communication with GP and, and also midwife. Yes, absolutely. Midwife too. Yeah. But then outside of the birth space, um, communication with GP, I think that's a really good one. Mm. Although I'm always so conscious when I say something about a GP that they're just our GP specialist colleagues are the most time-poor, overworked, underfunded.
0: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Here's another job for the GP. Absolutely. And it's it's a couple of sentences, really. Because, again, at that point, you know, you're not going to – You're not trying to do a full assessment. You're saying to someone, Mm. hey, you might be having these experiences and that might be a trauma response. And if you are, you could see someone about that.
1: And so I guess where to from here, if you're, you know, we've got hopefully many anaesthetists now very uh, engaged, maybe reigniting a passion they've already got, or maybe it's a new concept. Where to for more information? Where can we look? What can we think about
0: so I find the best um, the best website about trauma-informed care, um, where you can look into mm. pillars and key principles and all of that sort of jazz, is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, so SAMHSA. Mm-hmm. So that's an American website. Um, and... They put out in 2014, which I know is 10 years ago, but it's still. That's frightening. It's 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> it is the, the the key resource. I know it, it's horrifying, isn't it? Um, around trauma-informed care. It's really easy to follow. It makes a lot of sense. It's the best resource I've found.
1: Cool, and we'll pop a link to that. Yeah, there
0: and I think well. um, what's useful about it is it also um, talks a lot about what a trauma informed organisation looks like. And I think the more people yeah, know cool. what that looks like, the more people can push for that. Because the thing about trauma informed care is that it doesn't just improve the patient's experience, it improves our experience as clinicians. Absolutely. We'd all like to have less people who you know are verbally aggressive right it's not nice (laughs) it's not nice to go to work and get yelled at we like to feel that we're providing the best care we can and and having a good positive relationship with our patients Mm -hmm. we want to make sure that we're providing really really good informed consent and Mm. when somebody's brain (laughs) isn't taking the information in we're actually not doing that very well if we're not yep. identifying that this person's in freeze in this appointment you know they've heard mm. this first piece of information and now they've shut down we're not providing good informed consent because they haven't heard the rest right. of the information that we've told them absolutely absolu- i've had that experience myself um yes, where i was given information by somebody who was new (laughs) to doing it and Mm. didn't do a great job. And I felt really upset and distressed after that. And then had somebody Mm. who was very experienced at providing that information come and Mm. say it again. And I felt calm after that conversation.
1: Totally different experience.
0: And and that's the difference between, that was the difference between me going into surgery in an absolute state versus Mm. anxious. But able to manage.
1: Feeling more empowered. Yeah. yeah. 100%. Yeah. Absolutely. Dr. Rebecca Parks, thank you so much. Um, you are such a wealth of knowledge. We've just scratched the surface, but yeah. I think really <laughs> started to understand why this is so important um, and just talk about some little tools to be able to identify and think about. I really love the concept of that universal approach. Mm. I really love the resource that you've given us and so much food for thought. Thank you so much for your time. I am really deeply appreciative of you sharing your immense knowledge with us all. You're welcome. My pleasure. Anytime. (laughs) Amazing.
0: Thank you.